0: Jeremiah chapter 29 and looking at the first verse if you have a bible with you I encourage you to follow along or if you want to pull up the app on your phone You can follow that way or it should be on the screen behind me as well Last week we began a series of messages focused on home But maybe kind of in the backwards way in which we would think about home because as followers of jesus Here is not the home Most people around us would think of it as being home whereas as followers of jesus we're looking for a different home, a home with eternal foundations, one who is Jesus. And we looked at that from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. So again, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be looking at Jeremiah chapter 29, looking at the first verse and following. And here Jeremiah records this. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah in Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans, had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elisa, son of Shaphan, and to Uge- Gamaria, son of Heli- Helica, Whom Zedekiah king of Judah sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And this is what the letter said. This is what the Lord the Almighty, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not de- do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you, encounter, you they encourage you to have. They are they are, prophes- they are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to, the, to you. You will seek me and find me, when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. You may say, the Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon, but this is what the Lord says about the king who sits on David's throne and all the people who remain in the city. You are fellow citizens who did not go with you into exile. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will send the sword, famine, and plague against them, and I will make them like figs that are so bad that they cannot be eaten. I will pursue them with the sword, famine, and plague, and will make them abhorrent to all the kingdoms of the earth, a curse and an object of horror, of scorn and reproach, among all the nations where I drive them. For they have not listened to my words, declares the Lord, words that I sent to them again and again by my servants, the prophets, and you exiles have listened, and you exiles have not listened either, declares the Lord. Would you join me in prayer as we continue? Father God, thank you for your word, that you have revealed yourself to us through it, and most ultimately through your son, Jesus, and the way of life that he lived before us. Father, we ask that by your spirit, you would translate the words that we just heard and that we just read into the everyday details of our life, that they wouldn't just be words on a page from hundreds of years ago, but that the power of your spirit would translate them into um, how you want to speak to us today, how you want to lead and guide us today, and how your word applies to our life, our job, our education, the recreational activities we do, our family, whatever it may be, we ask that you speak into our life this morning. It's by the power of your Spirit and through your Son, Jesus, that we pray this. Amen. Not too long ago, we watched the Food Network show, Guy's Chance of a Lifetime. I know many of you in here watch the Food Network, so you've probably seen it. The show is about food, the Food Network star Guy Fieri in a contest that he holds for contestant chefs to win a new franchise of his restaurant chain, Chicken Guy. Throughout the show, six contestants have to undergo various challenges that show how well they would fit with being over a chicken guy franchise. So the contestants have to learn the menu. They have to know it inside and out. They have to know the process of making the food so that it's made the same each and every time. They have to show that they can manage a busy restaurant even if there is a disgruntled customer. And they have to pitch ideas for the restaurant to be able to market and adopt and to have them stick but also carry the signature style of the Chicken Guy franchise with it. Throughout the show, it's common for the contestants to have a conflict with Guy's direction for the franchise. Guy has his way and his culture of what the restaurant should be and how it should be run and what the values of that restaurant should be also. But in each episode of the show one or more, more contestants think that their way is better than Guy's way. I mean, Guy's the one who's going to give them this franchise if they win, and they're like, ah, oh, I know better than you. It's like, why are you in this contest if that's the way you're acting? But in the end, they are critiqued for not following, falling in line. They are docked points along the contest for not following the protocol of the company, and they are trusted less and less for not demonstrating that they can be about the company's culture and values. As the episodes progress, the approach of these contestants is dismissed at best and despised at worst. I mean, there's a few episodes where it's like, who does this person think they are? I mean, you're kind of wondering how do they survive the rest of this show, you know, the episodes of the show because their unique methods are disregarded and their alternative values are dismissed. The expectation of this whole entire show is that the contestants are to blend into the culture of the chicken guy franchise. This is often where followers of Jesus find ourselves compared to the culture around us. Christians try to hold to the values of Jesus, and Christians try to live out the ways of Jesus. Yet increasingly, the culture around us dismisses or even despises Christian values and ways. The values and ways of Christians are seemingly drowned out by the godless culture of the world around us. We can raise our voices about our convictions and what we believe are best behaviors, but the culture around us seems to just fall in line with what everyone else is doing, just blends in and says, if you don't want to do this, it's it's either our way or the highway. Like, you're you're going to blend in whether you want to or not is what the message we seem to get. So how can God's people reside in such a society that dismisses us at best or despises us at worst? How can God's people reside in a society that dismisses us at best or despises us at worst? What we encounter in God's word today is that being a minority is actually okay. God can still impact and transform the culture around us even if his people are the minority. Even if his people live strange and foreign to the ways of the culture around it. God simply needs his people to seek him with all of their heart and to bless others As best we can. How can God's people reside in such a society that dismisses us at best and despises us at worst? Seek and bless. Seek God with all of your heart to bless the culture around you as best you can. I don't think it's much of a secret to most people that cultural trends tend to move from the coasts inward in our country. What becomes culturally dominant in Los Angeles and New York eventually flows to the middle portion of the United States. The same has been true for the church in the United States as well. Increasingly, the coasts and its major metropolitan centers are detached in their religious affiliation. A two-year-old Gallup poll highlights this. Gallup concluded that church or religious affiliation has fallen to below 50% across the U.S. population. So this is of 2020. I mean, you can imagine maybe just within two years what that has changed, but it's still fairly recent. And that is a drastic change from the 73% descriptor of the United States that had a re- religious affiliation if you go all the way back to before 1940. So from 1940 till now, it's dropped that much. As this trend moves from the coast to the middle portion of the U.S., the middle of the us has maintained a little bit higher percentage of religious affiliation this portion and more specifically the more southern states are referred to as the bible belt meaning the heart of christian affiliation in the us resides here like if you want to find out where that what that looks like that's 10 that's where people tend to point go there you'll see it that's kind of what they're saying You can see this visually by this 2017 Gallup map that shows the coast as the uh, the centers of least religiously affiliated in the U.S. And as you get closer to the middle of the U.S., the colors on the map kind of change, and it shows that there's more affiliation. In many ways, those of us who live closer to the coast might be hoping that the trend will reverse and that we can return to what the middle of the U.S. is like, or at best, what it was like pre 1940 This is similar to how God's people found themselves in Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29 verses 1 through 3 describes, um, or they're described in verse 4 and and throughout the rest of the letter as essentially having been sent away from the Bible Belt of their day. They were sent from Jerusalem, the center of Jewish worship, into exile, into the places around Jerusalem or Israel where the Jewish religion or the, the way of worshiping God was not done. And it's from here, from Jerusalem, the heart of of this, the Bible Belt of that day, if you will. Jeremiah is sending a letter to the exiles who have already been sent out of Jerusalem. And Babylonian culture was far removed from having anything to do with Jewish worship. Rather, the Babylonians overran a portion of God's people and then subjugated them to the Babylonian way of life. Some biblical examples of this can be seen in Daniel, who a lot of people know about. He's best known for his encounter in the lion's den and surviving it. As well as his companions, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are best known for being thrown into a fiery furnace and living to tell about it later. These biblical characters were taken by the Babylonians and were faced with adapting to Babylonian culture as best they could without forsaking the way of life that God's people were called to live as Jews. Jeremiah is here sending this letter to exiles like Daniel and his friends. We don't know if it was sent to them specifically, but people like them who have already been sent into exile to give them perspective of their exiled situation. Jeremiah mentions in verses 8 and 9 that there are some prophets that are telling these exiles that they will be restored to the promised land soon. They're being told that this time of exile is temporary and that they just need to wait it out. It'll be over soon. So just kind of hang out there. There's no need to to settle down. Like, you're going to be home soon. This is the good news that these false prophets are are telling them. And and Jeremiah is trying to say, like, your perspective is a little off here, and I'm here to help give you a better perspective. Because Jeremiah reminds the exiles that their exile is not a temporary thing. Rather, as he mentions in verse 6, their time of exile will last into a few generations. Enough time passing for children to be born and for them to marry, And for those children to then have children as well. That doesn't sound like you're going to be there for a few months and then return or something like that. Like you're going to be here for a while, enough for for multiple generations to live here. And actually the verses following this in verses 15 through 23 go on to describe how Um, the exile has only just begun. Like, this is just the beginning of God's people being sent into exile. Because Jeremiah goes on to say that those remaining in Jerusalem are also going to be sent into exile. So there's no just going back to how it was. Like, this is going to be this way for a while. Ultimately, the exiles of God's people here, um, they're here because of their unfaithfulness to God. That's ultimately kind of the bigger context of Jeremiah's letter. God's people, you've been unfaithful to him, and God has allowed the Babylonians to un- overrun you to get your attention to turn back to him. Well, our current cultural situation in the U.S., uh, you know, the one of it becoming more secular, may not be directly tied to God's judgment, although, I don't know, it could be. It wouldn't surprise me if that is part of what God is doing to get the attention of His people here in the U.S. But we don't have any specific revelation that has has happened to reveal that to us, like Jeremiah is giving to God's people here in Jeremiah. So the situations may differ in that way a little bit, but the situation of the people in in the people in Jeremiah twenty-nine, the exiles, and those of us today in our cultural situation in the U.S. has a similarity. The similarity is that we are both living as exiles at the moment. The Jews of Jeremiah's day were strangers in Babylon, continuing their devotion to God amidst the people who didn't care about God or worshiping him. So too, followers of Jesus are strangers in the U.S., striving to be devoted to God amidst a culture who increasingly dismisses God or even despises God's ways. How can God's people reside in a society that dismisses and despises them? I have been a big proponent of high school graduates going to, if they're going to go to college, go to college in another state or at least a few hours away from where their family lives. And I've said this partly based on my own experience because I have found that going to college away from family forced me to have to mature in ways I don't know that I would have had I stayed near my family. But it does so with a little bit of guardrails, if you will. Like, it's not like you're just fully thrown into adulthood. Like, you still have some support from your family, but it gives you kind of some steps to take along that path. Going to school far away forced me to make friends and to make community. I didn't couldn't just default to, oh, mom and dad are there for me all the time, or something like that, or my siblings. I couldn't default to them. Going to school forced me to have to somewhat be financially responsible. I had to manage simple finances like gas for my car or insurance or having a side job and having spending money. I didn't have the full responsibility of rent or a mortgage or anything like that. But there was enough there to force me to have to be responsible, at least with a little. While I made myself a ho- at home during my time in school, it was different than when I moved here Going to school had a foreseeable end to it. I knew within four years I was likely not going to be there anymore. But moving here didn't have that foreseeable end to it. It's it's unknown. But when I went to school, I didn't have to settle down fully. I could invest there to a degree, but I didn't have to invest fully. There's a difference in perspective to a place where you know you're going to be there for only a little while or you don't know how long you're going to be there. This is the perspective that Jeremiah is trying to convey to the exiles throughout this letter that he wrote to them. He's trying to say, you're not just going to be in exile for a few years and then leave. Rather, you're going to be there for likely the rest of your time on earth. Like, this is your home for the rest of your time on earth before you die, is essentially what he's telling them. And the question is, are you going to fight it or are you going to embrace it for what it is? Are you going to fight your circumstance or embrace it for what it is? Essentially, Jeremiah is telling the recipients of his letter to look at the bigger picture. You're not going to change your surroundings on your own. In this case, their surroundings were partly due to God's own hand bringing them to that place. So, like, are you going to fight God on this? This is essentially what he's telling them. But Jeremiah is reminding these people that, yes, your situation is less than ideal. He doesn't seem to be saying, like, oh, just it's hunky-dory, just get used to it. Like, no, it's not ideal, but you're here, you're there, it's not going to change anytime soon. But that's okay, because God can still do awesome things in less than ideal circumstances. God's blessings are not location or circumstantially dependent. While God orchestrated his blessings and promises to come through the people in the land of Israel, he is not hindered by bumps in the road to his orchestrated plan. If that means his people are exiled for a while, then he works through that. But ultimately, his blessings and promises cannot be hindered or stopped. Rather than pining to be back from where they came from, Jeremiah encourages the people to settle into their new residence He tells them, build houses, plant gardens, eat, marry, and start a family. Find spouses for your children. Enjoy the family that God has gifted to you. Enjoy the grandchildren that God will eventually gift to you. Jeremiah concludes this section with language that we encounter with Adam and Eve in Genesis, where he talks about them increasing in number. In a sense, Jeremiah is hearkening to a new creation that God is bringing about in the lives of these exiles. Overall, these exiles live lives were as good as dead. I mean, their whole life was just uprooted and moved somewhere else. Most of us would be like, well, my life's over. I'm not getting to enjoy whatever I used to enjoy. Like, my life just ended as far as I'm concerned. But it's in the wake of the death of their old life that God is creating a new one. In my neighborhood, there's probably a split of 75% to 25% of the houses that are owned versus rented. And one of the biggest differences that you notice about a house that's owned or rented, you can often tell by the yard. The houses that are rented end up with the grass that's like up to here after (laughs) so long. And it's like the person who's out there like trying to push through it. He doesn't realize you can raise the blade on their mower or they only want to do it one time, whatever it is. It's like pull it again. And part of that is because it gets so tall that eventually just someone has to do it. But often what it indicates is that someone who's renting it, or even the landowner, like they're not fully invested in that area. Whereas someone who owns the house is very invested in their property and tries to take care of it. Because a homeowner is looking at the long-term plan, right? Whereas the renter is only looking at the short-term. What will benefit them right now for the most part? And I know that's not every renter, but that characterizes my neighborhood for sure. And this is true of the exiles in Jeremiah. He's saying, you aren't just to be squatters in Babylon for now. Rather, you need to settle, invest in this space, seek the peace and well-being of where you live as long as you're there. And part of seeking the peace and well-being of Babylon was to pray to the Lord to bless it. But put yourself in their shoes. I mean, this would be like, I don't know, like right now, like Russia invading us and God telling, or Jeremiah telling us, you need to pray for Russia to bless them so that you can live well in the land that they just overran. Like we, like, what are you talking about? Like, why would I do that? No, I want to go back to where I was from, where everything was supposed to be how it was supposed to be, and God was blessing there. I don't want to be here and God working here. But that's what Jeremiah is conveying to them. Yes, they were forced to live in a new place with a new culture, a new language, new customs, new authorities, new laws, new everything. But just because they were in a new place didn't mean that they couldn't seek the Lord while they are there. Rather, we see in verses 10 through 14 that this time in exile looks like it's a kind of training ground for these exiles to seek the Lord during that time. Because forsaking the seeking of the Lord is what got them in this situation to start with. They neglected God, and God needed to get their attention in a drastic way, so he let them be overrun and sent into exile. Seeking the Lord with all of one's heart for the blessings of one's residence is how God will impact us and transform the culture around us. At the time, I don't think the exiles probably thought that that's how it would happen. You mean we're going to stay here and we're not going to move, but we need to seek you, and in seeking you, you're going to bless us and bless the people around us? Like, that's not how at all we envisioned our life being, but that's what Jeremiah is telling them. And that's how a minority people impact and transform a foreign, ungodly culture. And the lives of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are probably the prime example of that in Scripture, of a minority who transformed a culture. They weren't the dominant force at that time. They were just a small group of people, but in their cases, like laws actually got changed in the wake of what they did. Not just for God's people, but for the whole Babylonian culture at that time. And it's in seeking God's blessing for Babylon that the exiles will also experience the blessing of God while they are in exile. So where do we find ourselves today? We find that ourselves as the church in the U.S. in a form of ex- exile at the margins of society. We, like the exiles of Jeremiah 29, could pine for the glory days of yesteryear. We, like the exiles of Jeremiah 29, could fight our current spot on the margins of society. Or, like the exiles of Jeremiah 29, we can embrace it for what it is. We can embrace that the margins of society is where God has allowed the church to be for right now. We may not know why that is entirely, and it's Definitely not ideal. It would obviously be better if the church in the way of Jesus was far more dominant and respected and embraced in our culture. But that's not reality right now. And that's okay. Not because we don't want it to be that way, but because God can still do awesome things on the margins of society. God can, do, God can bring about a new thing in the shell of the old. God is the one who brings life out of death. See Jesus' resurrection. What we can do is seek and bless. Seek God with all of our heart while we're on the margins of society. Seek God as our one and only allegiance above all others. Seek God's will for all areas of our life. And in doing God's will and living out God's ways, we can bless the culture around us. Seeking to extend God's goodness and his way of life into every area of life as much as we're able. Today, if you've never sought God with all of your heart, I invite you to begin that journey by seeking God in faith and expressing that faith in baptism. Dying to the death-oriented ways of the world and rising to the life-giving ways of Jesus' life. If you've already begun that journey, I invite you to seek God with all of your heart. With your whole self. Again, you probably mentally have assented to doing that. Like, you don't disagree with seeking God. But we all falter in that. So how can we commit ourselves this week and the next moment and the moment after that to seeking God with our whole self, with with all of our heart, with every part of our life? Every moment, every action, every thought. And I invite you to consider how in doing that, you can bless the world around you as best you can. Where can you extend God's goodness and love and mercy and forgiveness and truth into the relationships or the situations or the moments of your life each and every day? How can God's people reside in a society that dismisses us at best or despises us at worst? Seek and bless. Seek God with all of your heart to bless the culture around you as best you can. Would you join me in prayer as we close? Father God, We recognize that we are in a form of exile right now. That as followers of you, we don't fit into the dominant part of our culture. We're not at the forefront. We don't necessarily hold positions of power. And while that can seem like it's... There's no hope in that. Father, we recognize that you truly are Lord, that you are over and beyond that entire situation, that you don't need to have people necessarily in those positions to make your way and your will known in the world, but that you can work through a minority. You can work on the margins. That's what you do best. You've done it throughout all of history ever since humanity separated itself from you, and you're not going to stop doing that today with our lives. Father, lead and guide us to know how to bless others as you have blessed us and help us to seek you with all of our hearts. It's by the power of your Spirit and through your Son, Jesus, that we pray this. Amen.